Welcome back to Perspective, a space to hear all sides of every story. I'm Pragya. And I'm Dory, and today we're joined by Spendina Pavalori and Connor Flick, two Kentucky high school students, and Mr. Matson, a high school science teacher, for a conversation about school reopenings amidst COVID-19. This is a critically relevant topic, one which several schools across Kentucky and our nation are dealing with at the moment, and with several anticipated returns back to in-person schooling over the next couple weeks, just around one year since we last sat in those classroom desks, we're ready to find normalcy again, but not without listening to those at the heart of this discussion, both students and educators. All right, well, thank you all so much for joining us today. Connor, would you like to introduce yourself and then we can just go around? So hi, I'm Connor. I'm a student at the Gallon Academy, but I currently live normally just wherever in Kentucky at the moment. And I did a lot of work with the Coping with COVID student-to-student study, and I'm part of the Kentucky Student Voice team. So I've been very entrenched in the world of COVID and trying to figure out what we need to do next in our education system. My name is Zach Matson. I teach chemistry at Lafayette High School in Lexington, Kentucky. I've been teaching for about 20 years. Uh, I taught on the south side of Chicago and then I came down here. So I, I also have a parent perspective. I have two younger children, a fifth grader and a second grader. Hi, my name is Spandana Pavalori and I'm a sophomore at DuPont Manual High School. And um, I also worked on the Coping with COVID student to student survey. That was my first big project with the student voice team. And now I'm just working in various teams, um, trying to like in education justice workshops, um, writing for the blog, things like that. Yeah, so we'll go ahead and jump right into the um, essence of this whole discussion. We want to spend a lot of time focusing on, um, of course, the issues that we see within our education system, but we do want to be intentional about spending time on how to address those in the most equitable way possible. Um, obviously, once again, by hearing from the perspective of people that are at the front lines of um, of this whole, you know, situation. So um, I guess to start, Spandana, if you want to kind of speak to this, right now we're seeing a lot go on with education and um, of course, a lot of us are from different counties across Kentucky, so we have different perspectives in that front. Um, but also just with recognizing how many people are involved in education itself in, in America, um, you know, we're always, whenever we're trying to make this transition back to the sense of normalcy that we'll get into in a little bit and how to best address that, um, you also have to recognize that we're trying to balance the needs of parents and students and educators community members, other stakeholders of public education while we're transitioning back. Um, and once again, going about it in the most equitable way possible. So Splendida, if you want to kind of speak to how do we give grace during this whole transition to in-person schooling approach? How do we allow for that flexibility from your perspective, um, whether that means allowing for students to have more transition time, whether that means giving teachers more resources and time to adjust to you know, a new schedule of, you know, spending eight hours a day in a classroom. How do we go about that process? Yeah, I think it's really necessary to ask people what they need, what they like to make that transition easier. I think it's really, really stressful for all stakeholders um, in school to um, think about going back during a pandemic. And um, I actually worked on a parent and teacher survey also um, that like kind of branched off of the student to student survey. And 
the teachers were talking about how they were like scared to go back and how that was um, and how some of them weren't receiving any communication. And um, one of the teachers on our study actually didn't even know anything about the schedule and that they were going back, um, but the district was having conversations about it and not really even communicating to teachers. And that lack of communication is just going to make um, everything way, way more difficult for um, teachers, parents, students alike. Um, so I think it's really about um, making things, trying to be as understanding as possible because this is a really difficult time. It's difficult to make decisions. And um, I think it is about giving um, teachers, parents, and students time to consider their options and um, really like weigh what they want to do. Um, but I think that what really needs to happen is um, parents and students and teachers need to be asked what they need or what they need to feel more safe going back into school. I mean, this is like, since it does regard safety, I think it's really, really important to make sure that um, like parents feel like their kids are safe and students feel like they'll be okay in a classroom with like 20 kids and that safety precautions will be taken. Um, because actually in one of, um, the interviews I did for the student to student survey, one of the students, he was a high school student and was talking about how um, they're in high school, but there's like the safety precautions weren't really being followed and it wasn't possible almost. And that's like concerning, um, especially um, for now that we're considering going back and Manuel's a huge high school, it's really, really important to try and keep things as safe as possible as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you bring a really important holistic approach to the whole situation. Obviously, you know, like we've said before, it's not just going back or not going back. It's there's so many things you have to consider, which is why, you know, it's taken so long to figure out when we're going back. Things have been pushed back um, for months on end, which is fine because we're, you know, we're just trying to adjust to things as they come and go. So um, and I and I like the way you kind of situated that in safety, because I think that's really important to keep in mind for educators and students alike, once again, um, according to the CDC, you know, the whole reopening plan situation is very heavily dependent on um, a state by state, case by case basis, depending on, you know, positivity rates and uh, just the situation going on within different counties. Um, and so overall, though, C the CDC is, you know, really pushing for students and educators, really anyone inside a school building to wash and sanitize their hands more often, keep physical distance from other students, wearing a mask, um, avoiding sharing objects, including water bottles, things like that, um, using hand sanitizer. It's like, you know, all of the list goes on and on, but that's also like a lot to think about, right? How are we going to be able to transition back to a normal learning environment when there's all these things in the way of doing that? And, um, you know, Dory and I were at school the other day trying to help all these freshmen that were coming back to the school that had never seen our building before um, adjust to that. And that's a big shift. It's, you know, one way hallways that sometimes feel like they're too much, but it's also stuff that needs to happen in order for us to once again, maintain that sense of normalcy that we need. Um, Mr. Madsen, I'm curious to hear your perspective on that as well. What do you think needs to be done on that front to once again maintain that flexibility and balance for parents and students and educators, other stakeholders. So I really liked what Spondana said about, you know, parents and teachers worried about students and 
teachers not knowing necessarily how things are going to be when we get back. And as you were talking about that, I was thinking of some of the logistics that have been tossed on our plate, like, uh, and these aren't exact details, but like we need to take all our desks and chairs and wipe them down between classes and the spray has to sit on there for X amount of time. And like, that's, that's a mental log and logistical hurdle. That's like pretty terrifying. And, uh, you know, just when, when can I sit next to a student to help them or how close can I get, these are all things that I think about. And then I walk in the building and I think about the other stresses that students have like the metal detectors. It's like, yes, there's a safety issue, but is it worth the additional stress of like one more hurdle coming back to school, having these metal detectors and I, I don't know, like at some point the red tape has to be cut. And like, like Prabhu was saying, like you were saying, there's like a sense of normalcy we have to get back to. There has to be a balance. And I understand right now it's not a balance because everybody's freaking out and trying to figure out what to do. But how soon can we get rid of all this red tape and just get to a, a regular baseline? I think that's really important. Yeah, and Connor, I will direct this question more towards you. Um, but in the fall, we definitely saw the switch to virtual education just widely affect the mental health of students, teachers, and parents alike. As we were sitting at home at a screen during normal school hours, educators are forced to quickly adjust to constantly changing platforms and schedules. And parents were often thrown into a homeschool situation unexpectedly, um, but also rushing to find childcare if they had to work. Transitioning back to this more normal platform, how do you think we should go about accommodating everyone's mental health equitably? Should we, you know, increase counselors in schools? Should we address the flexibility within schedules and um, school districts? Or do we, you know, decrease the amount of work or homework given to students? You know, how would you go about doing that? So, much like everything else during this time, uh, my short answer to that is that there's really no magic bullet for if you do this one thing, then all students are going to have better mental health, all teachers are going to have better mental health, all parents are going to have better mental health because everyone's needs right now are very different. And much like how the situation with COVID is ever changing, people's mental health needs are ever changing in response to that. And so how we approach mental health in our schools and what we do next. And it's going to be on that case by case basis to where it's going to have to involve a lot of teachers sitting down with students and saying, what can I do for you right now? Is there anything that we could do to help accommodate? Is there something going on in your life that like maybe dr dragging you down, doing things that like even before COVID should have happened to where just addressing students and figuring out what's going on that's impacting your education and what can we do to remove those barriers and then on a parent and teacher scale really just trying to figure out what's going on that can prevent parents from being showing up for their children and showing up for their education and making sure that they're producing a supportive home environment that can be conducive to learning even if it's virtually or in person and for teachers figuring out what's the barriers from uh, providing a good education and making sure that their needs are being met mentally and socially so that way they aren't feeling like they're isolated they aren't feeling like they're the ones struggling and just being bogged down with work as well it needs to be something that happens across the board and once again there is no ready-made solution for that so it might look like decreasing homework for students because that can be something that takes a load off of everyone else but it also might be introducing more counselors even for teachers and parents figuring out 
just having talk sections about what's going on, what do we need to do? Uh, there is other people during this time, even if that's over Zoom and not in person, just knowing that there's other people out there that you can talk to and make friends with, even in a COVID environment, I feel like for a lot of people that would be very helpful, especially since a lot of people point out that their mental health needs declined in response to not having that social connection and feeling that isolation very, very heavily, especially a few months ago, but even now as we keep going in person and that doesn't become universal. I think you bring up a really interesting point about that because once again, we have to always come back to focusing on how multifaceted any approach has to be. Um, and Mr. Matson, I'm curious to hear your perspective on this too, just because I know you've, you're a teacher, you've dealt with um, students of all backgrounds, different socioeconomic statuses, races, you know, so many different demographics that really inform a student's educational experience, quite honestly. So um, I think it's just widely known that um, typically issues like mental health and financial insecurity, things like that, tend to disproportionately impact students of lower socioeconomic statuses um, or just marginalized students broadly. How do you think, Mr. Matson, we should go about addressing that need for flexibility like Connor was talking about um, with students like that, that may have, you know, before COVID not have had the most ideal learning experience either, but after COVID, is that only now being illuminated? Man, that is the uh, the big, biggest hurdle right now, I think. I And I had mentioned when we were speaking earlier, like the idea of the gap getting so wide in terms of socioeconomic status, um, like, you know, my kids, my two children are very lucky. We were able to like, my wife was working from home and we were able to pay someone to come in some of the time to watch them. And all I could think, and I think of my own students is like, man, if you got a young kid at home and the parents can't afford to stay home and watch them, it's like, wow, what do you, what, I have no idea what they're doing. And then with my own students, it's like a big struggle. And I can tell you for a lot of teachers, like I feel this tremendous guilt that I'm like cheating my students of their education by not giving them the education they deserve or by cutting out content. And then I also feel guilty about like giving them any more work. And I remember at the beginning of the semester, it's just like, uh, I was telling one of my peers, I said, you know, just screw it, give up on this. We don't need to be cramming more work down these kids' throats. Uh, They got enough going on. And, you know, I just have to balance that. Again, there's, there's got to be a happy medium. And I've, I've told my students right now, like, as we are transitioning, transitioning back to school, um, there's a lot of additional stress and cognitive load is way up. And I need to slow things down. And I'm a little better at changing my expectations for the students that I am for me. But like weird hurdles that I've come across is like, you know, there are content corners that I can cut in terms of like getting across what I need to with all this ex- without this extra information. But what I hadn't considered is like the hurdles of how do I present that? So it may be, wow, I can streamline this topic, but I don't know how to do that. I've never taught it that way. And then it kind of turns into a mess. So that's something. But like the, one of the big things I try and communicate and like, you know, is mental health. And I've said that for many years, like mental health's got to come first. And if mental health doesn't happen, then, you know, physical health has to come next. And those two are tied in. And what happens is students are prioritizing academics over mental health. And that's just such a downward spiral because we internalize these failures. So I realize that's a lot of words, but the short of it is like, we really need to communicate to the students that there is a higher cognitive load right now. There is no way to perform at the levels they were, but it's beyond their control. And so the teachers like Connor, man, I was, I want to take notes. Um, In fact, I was, 
but like um, in terms of flexibility and how can we work with these students and like one-on-one, -on -one, how can I help you? And I've said that to some of my students before, how can I help you? And the problem is like, or one of the big problems related to that is I haven't seen 80% of my students' faces. Like we can't mandate cameras on or whatever. And I don't think necessarily, okay, well, I don't think we should be able to do that. But if you got a quiet kid uh, who doesn't turn the camera on, doesn't type in chat, I've never met them. When they walk in, it's gonna be, it's embarrassing. Like I'm stressed thinking, you know, I've had you in class for a year and I wouldn't know you uh, in a crowd, let alone with a mask. So like, it's hard to reach those kids because in person I can see them and I can say hi to them in the hall or say hi as they're walking in and initiate direct conversation. And I can't do that on Zoom and I can't, and yeah. <laughs> Plus like, we're, we're, we're trying to stay afloat too. And that's, it's just, it's a bit overwhelming. And I think there's a lot of guilt from the part of educators. And uh, I like, in general, I've, I've seen great things from my own children's teachers and their schools doing a good job. The big, the big, big other hurdle is man, so much information being dumped on everybody. It's just nonstop emails and communication. As a parent, I can't keep up with it. And as a teacher, I can't keep up with it. Sorry, that was a long. No, I think that's great. And I don't even know part of, you know, my classes. I don't know who I'm gonna sit next to. I don't know half the faces in some of my classes. And Splenda and I know, I mean, are you in person yet? No, um, we've been virtual all year, um, but we're planning on going back April 5th um, in person. Okay. So yeah, I think it's just a crazy unknown kind of thing for a lot of schools right now. But do you know what your um, setup is going to be? Because Fayette County is going to be very difficult and just crazy. But would you mind telling us a little bit about that? Yeah, for sure. So there's still so much that needs to be figured out and we've just got a tiny piece of the information. Um, I don't even know if this is exactly like set in stone, but I believe it's going to be like names A through L go in Monday and Tuesday, Wednesdays an all virtual day. And then um, like K through Z go in, um, go in Thursday and Friday and yeah, I think that's how it's going to work. Um, we know nothing about the schedule, um, so I really like don't have much to answer for that. But I think our classes are going to be shorter than how they used to be when we were in person like last year. Um, so they're not going to be like 90 minutes. Um, I know we're not going to have like lunch in the um, cafeteria. It's probably going to be in our classes. Um, but yeah, that's really all I know right now. Can I chime in here real quick? Uh, in relation to that. So it's good to hear that. And one of the things that as educators I was facing and as students, when I heard uh, one of the earlier podcasts from Dorian Pragya was uh, like, we feel like we're on this island of misery or we're isolated, um, but we don't realize that it's not that we're on the same continent of misery. We just can't see each other. So for me, I, I had to recognize for myself anyway, that like I could leave the house and I could go to work and I could have minimal interactions with my, the people who I'm used to seeing the teachers. And while students may be 80 or 90% of my job and interacting with them is what makes me go in. I had those advantages over other people, which is I could go in, I could leave the house. I could have some normalcy. And like, I really feel consistency is such a huge deal in mental stability and everything else. Like, um, yeah. So like, having a consistent environment. And I heard Dorian Pragya talking about like, 
you are used to being surrounded by people who are your friends and who aren't your friends in school. And even if they're not your friends, it's not like they're your enemies, but like being around people who you choose to be around and don't choose to be around. Well, right now you don't get to be around anybody, let alone the people you don't choose to be around. It's just like mind blowing for me. And when you were talking, Spondana, about the, um, uh, the, the schedules going back, like I look at these flow charts and it's so overwhelming. And I think it would be good for the kids to know, but I, I'm always kind of afraid to tell them is like, I don't have a freaking clue. All right. We get, uh, you get a bunch of information. I get a bunch of information. These emails with 70 bullet points. And then the next day, 49 of those bullet points are changed. And I'm not criticizing administration or the district. They're trying to communicate and they're trying to do their best, but like, I can't handle it. I'm on information saturation. And I think it would be good to some degree for the parents and the students to know like, Hey, we got nothing. We're panicking. We're biting our nails at this end. And I wish I knew and kids are asking me logistics. And then I feel guilty because I don't know the logistics. And it's like, yeah, I'm, I'm the adult. I'm the educator here. I should know like how long our class is going to be and all that. But right now I'm just like treading water, trying to stay alive. Uh, but so there's that. Um, and that's a big stressor too. So one of the, um, shoot, I lost my train of thought. <laughs> um, yeah. So I, I worry when we go back and I've said this before, like what, who can expect like any education to take place at all? Consistency is so critical um, that like we're, we're essentially having the first day of school in March. And it's like, how, how much gets done in those first couple of weeks of school, but we're going to be back for two or three weeks. And then we've got spring break. And I, I, you know, I've said to my peers, I'm like, what could we possibly hope to accomplish? <laughs> I'd like do so much chaos, so much change. And then it's like, oh yeah, we got to keep going. And I know this isn't very politically correct to say, but I kind of said for the students, it's like, you guys are at home. And I like, if this sounds bad, I'm sorry, but like you're in prison, you can't leave, you can't do anything, but you're being told, dig these holes, right? Like in prison, you have this job, break these rocks, dig these holes. And like, then I have to do the mental math of you're free, you get to go to school, but keep digging holes. You know what I mean? It's like uh, different environments, same, same requirements. And so, like I said, for me, like I have, I have high content expectations and I have this tremendous guilt about like, you guys don't need additional stress in your lives, but it would be good to have structure. It is good to learn some content. It's a really, really hard line to draw. So at least for me. I actually want to emphasize some things that you mentioned there, uh, Mr. Matson, to where you mentioned a couple times now this idea of like almost information overload to where constantly getting emails, constantly getting communications. I actually, for my own purposes, made a count of how many emails I got yesterday between my school and my personal emails, and it was over 50. And so just kind of trying to dig through all of that and figure out what's going on and understand what's happening in my own life. That's a lot of information. That's a lot of mental uh, workload, as you've been mentioning. And that's something that students and teachers are experiencing right now. And so to me, I'm just pointing this out. I just kind of find it funny that we're asking students, hey, you have all this information that's ever changing and we're going to fire hose it at you. And this is on part of both schools and everyone else. But we're going to fire hose this information at you. It's going to constantly change. You need to keep up with all of it to make sure that A, you're safe and B, that you know what's going on. And on top of all that, we're going to ask you to learn other information at the same time. And you need to make sure that you're taking that all in, you're responding to it, and that you have the time to sit down and really engage with your learning. 
not all of that is going to happen and something is going to slip because that's such a bigger workload than what we're trying, what we've ever done before for a lot of students. And a lot of students are feeling that, but they just don't know how to express that right now. So you mentioning that kind of made it all connect to my own mind. Like, hmm, it's interesting that we have all, we are increasing our information load while still expecting the same thing out of our students a lot of the time. And so even as we go back in person, if we're still having that same cognitive load, we're still having that same information load, going back in person isn't going to change the fact that students are going to have trouble learning. I think both of you all are just incredible. I mean, the way you frame that is like, how do we go back to the same sense of normalcy, but maintain flexibility, but also like put structure in our lives that's been missing for the past year? Like, there's so much to ask, so many questions, and I don't think nearly as many answers. Um, but I'm curious to know, and I guess, Mr. Matson, we'll start for you for with this one again, because I think learning itself, and we've said this several times over, like, has been so disruptive beyond just school. Like, our home environments and our school environments, you know, Spunda and Connor, you all know more than anyone, I think, that we've said it over and over again with even the coping with COVID study that we'll get into in just a little bit. But, um, you know, there's such a very, it's like a very blurry line now between what a student's home environment versus their school environment looks like. Um, and I've said this before, but my morning commute is literally two feet from my bed to my desk every single day. Um, and it gets, it's, it gets old very quickly, but, um, there's also an element of flexibility in that where if we're on a zoom call, that doesn't seem like we're getting much, you know, work done. Our teacher will just let us go and we don't have anything to do then. Um, but there's just a lot. I think everyone's learning experiences are very unique in that matter. Um, obviously, students have very consistent schedules that we're kind of, you know, keeping up with every day. But I know for educators, it's probably very different as well. So, Mr. Matson, I'm curious, what is a typical school day in your life look like? Um, and just, you know, how, how have you gone about adjusting to all of that with having to, you know, come in person sometimes to teach virtually, but, you know, in your classroom? How, how does that all feel? It's it like I have, I was thinking this morning about like which teachers were coming in and which weren't. So like there's been a pretty good sense of flexibility from the administration and from the district kind of hands off if you step back and look at it in the big picture. But like in the day-to-day -day picture, it's just like this crushing things like is a Sunday night. All right, you got to get kids in school Wednesday. We need to start targeting instruction and getting these kids in. And it's like, what? No one told me that. And now I've got like two days to get some kids dragged in. And then like the next week, they're like, we aren't allowed to bring kids in because the numbers are up. Uh, but I mean, if you step back, it's like, well, you can teach from home. You can do this. You can do synchronous. You can do asynchronous or whatever. But in, in the day-to-day -day logistics, it's just like kind of overwhelming. And so I have a first block planning period. And, um, you know, Dorian probably have heard me say, in fact, I posted to social media that day. I have sent over 2,000 emails in this 2020, 2021 email. So Connor, man, I feel your pain 100%. And those aren't like frivolous emails. Those are all things that I had to respond to. And again, it's cognitive load. And then I, so I, I raced through these, this first block trying to get every, all my ducks in a row. And then my, my first class starts and I'm like scrambling. And then it's like, oh, these people must think I'm a total hack, but it's reality. It's just like, everything is scrambling, everything's trying to get done. And then there's like this 15 minute break in between classes right now. I don't know how things are gonna look once we're back in person. And during that time, like I gotta have my Zoom videos processing and grabbing my stuff, throwing all the papers aside to grab a new stack of papers. Um, 
And then at lunch, it's basically just triage of all that other stuff. And I've been trying to tell myself like, look, I need to not be working on school stuff for some part of this lunch break. Um, and then, you know, uh, it's, it's that same cycle. But again, like I am at such a huge advantage because I can go in uh, if I choose. There was a while where I decided not to. Um, but then there's the expectation for a while of, hey, you need to be going in to help these kids. And we've got people on staff who are like, all right, we're going to schedule you to meet with this kid on this day. And it's like, <laughs> I'm in every day except Wednesdays. Uh, how are you going to make me feel guilty about not wanting to do something that I shouldn't have to do? And again, I, I hope Pragi and Dory can say like, I have an inability now to complete sentences or to complete thoughts. And I, I try and tell the kids, it's like, that's because I'm a wreck too. <laughs> and, uh, and like I, I said, that analogy before, I think it would be good if the kids knew that they're um, not alone. They're not on an island of misery. They're not drowning alone. Everybody is screwed by this situation. All the kids are in that same boat. And while some, some kids may be in a better boat, it's, it's, um, it's, it's still a sucky situation. Uh, and I do have to give you a little anecdote, which is funny. And I, I don't mind calling out Dory. It's happened a couple of times where I'll check like Instagram between classes or something. And I'll see that someone had posted during class, which I find hilarious. And I have no criticism whatsoever, but Dory did it the other day and I called her out. But it was like, that's great. I'm glad that they're interacting. They're doing stuff. And I'll tell you guys what, I have no idea how you're going to transition back without Zoom to um, not multitasking. So right now you can tune out and text and like, I have no problem with any, I got no criticism to anybody at this point. Um, and like I said, I think it's funny and it's good to see what kids are doing. Um, but I don't know, how can you possibly transition back to sitting in a desk single focused on one thing when you've spent the last year being able to multitask behind the scenes. I don't know how that transition is going to take place. I don't know how you're going to do it. And I'll tell you, I had a couple kids in, I don't know what day, Thursday or something. And it was, it was kind of mind blowing because the one kid kind of looked like he was taking notes or whatever. And the other guy's like, Oh, that's all the notes you've taken. And it was like half a page. And you know, that's, there may have been five or six pages of notes he could have taken. And then he said, yeah, my hand got tired. <laughs> and it's not like I'm criticizing his physical fitness. It's just like um, he is used to the system where he can just sit there and kind of tune out and not have to do anything and tell himself he's going to look at the scan notes later, but he doesn't. And that's why these guys are failing. And if they were in person, they could be dragged along day to day or at least like held along. I know that sounds bad. I don't want to sound like I bullied these kids, but like I could see them and I could support them. And they wouldn't have to say to themselves, he's judging me by my grade, which I'm not. It's more of like, uh, he knows I'm a good person and he's going to help me with this grade. Oh, and the other thing I was going to say, and sorry to ramble a little bit. This is something I was thinking of that's very interesting in terms of people who come into the building and people who don't. So our, our administrator had told me, we'll say around 40% of the staff was coming in, which is fine um, last semester. But um, I thought about it and who are the people I see? I think that 90% of those people were over 30. And then, you know, and I don't know if the younger teachers weren't coming in because they're more comfortable working in a digital environment from home, or if they didn't need that structure, like old people are set in their ways. You can't teach an old dog new tricks. So like our, how long in our lives have we been get up, go to work, come home. So I don't, it was just an interesting observation. It was like, wow, 90% of these people who come in are old. So we're, 
it's either a failing of the old people, but again, then we had that added bonus of getting the heck out of the house, right? So I don't know. That's all I got. Sorry. I, Mr. Matson, I think you brought up a really interesting point that I want to really quickly touch on. And if anybody else has any opinions on this too, um, I don't know how many of you all are involved with AP testing and stuff, but um, it's almost annoying to think about because like you were saying, like we have spent all year in our homes, in our bedrooms, doing school and learning probably what I would say a very small percentage of what we would be learning and the experiences that we would be having in person. Um, I know for Mr. Matz in your chemistry class, we would probably be doing so many labs at this point um, that we haven't been able to do. And, you know, that's no one's fault in particular, but it's just the, you know, that's just the circumstance that we're in. But I think part of that flexibility that we've been talking about too means flexibility in testing, because how do you go about assessing a student's knowledge of a certain subject on something that they haven't even had a whole full fruitful year learning. And I, you know, that's just something that I think is a really fine line to distinguish between because, um, you know, for AP testing itself, I haven't heard of any other recent updates, but from when I last heard, they're not changing or, you know, shortening any of the exams like they did last year where, you know, typically those exams run like two and a half to three hours. Um, and last year, I think they were shortened to like 45 minutes. Um, but this year, none of that's happening from what I understand. And that's kind of concerning to me because I'm in four AP classes this year. And, you know, I don't think I've learned the same amount that I would have learned if I was in person. So Mr. Matson and Connor and Spunner, if you all have any, you know, thoughts on that? What do you think should be happening? Should we be adjusting testing to the circumstance that we're in? Or do you think, um, you know, by the time we transition to in-person for the students that are going, we might be able to learn back a little bit more of what we had lost? Um, I want to tag you two in first because uh, I, I have too many words about this and I'm really interested to what you have to say, but I want you to know, like as unprofessional as it sounds, freaking screw this AP testing, the state testing and everything else. All right. Uh, but anyway, I want to hear what you have to say, and then I'll go on my rant. Yeah, I, I really have to echo everything you guys have said. It's definitely something that's like so, so stressful to even think about. Like, I never would have thought they wouldn't have made any accommodations um, because we've been like online. We've been learning off computers for a year. Um, and I think when you, um, when Connor and, and you and Mr. Matson were talking about like the mental health aspect and trying to make the workload manageable as well, I think that has been really difficult for my AP teachers because when you have a test that's going to cover the exact same content as uh, it would cover like in an in-person year, well, then you can't really like stop and like give break days and, you know, lessen the workload. And that does take a mental health toll on students who have been virtual all year. But then also like if the AP college board is like saying like, oh, we're gonna include all of it and everything's gonna stay the same, then what can teachers do? Because it's like, do you want to give your students the content they need to succeed or do you prioritize their mental health? And that's just such a difficult like, you know, battle. Um, and so I think it, it's just really frustrating because I think what I've learned through this Coping with COVID survey, like I, I feel lucky enough to be privileged and know that I have the resources I need. I have reliable Wi-Fi access. I, I have technology that's able to support me through all of this. 
but not every student has that. Students have very different like home environments and to just kind of write all that off and like write the fact that students have been learning like this for a year, like write all of that off and just say, well, everything's the same. And like for, I'm sorry, my biggest like class is like world that I have to study for. And I have had to learn all of world history in like over a computer and I don't really know a ton yet. And like, then it just goes to a lot of self-studying. And you were talking about in-person project, for us, that looks like 14 days in person total until like the end of the year. And um, and I bet a couple of those are gonna be full of like transitions and it's not gonna be like as much as, as much of content. So then like, I don't even know if going back in person will even be able to like fill all that void that we've built up throughout the year. I definitely wanna write off of that and I'm gonna rant about the college board for a second. And so for AP tests, the point of the AP test is that way students that normally don't have dual credit opportunities and can't enroll in a college at the moment can still get college-like experiences and college-like education and then tests to prove that they have that sort of education. The thing is, is that as a student at a higher education institution right now, a lot of my professors, a lot of my classes are much more flexible than what College Board is doing right now. College Board is holding 15, 16, 17 year olds to higher standards than actual college students at the moment. And they're saying, you need to learn all of this content. You need to learn all of the same things in the same way, even though the delivery is completely different. Uh, your teachers may have to cut corners. It still needs to be to the exact same standards. And we're gonna expect you to get the exact same grades in the exact same way, in the exact same format. And you need to show up, sit down and take a test for this. Whereas for most of my exams, they're virtual. I'm more open note. I'm, my professors are more accommodating. They're willing to give more time. They're willing to just work with me a bit more. And so comparing actual college to the college board, they're doing very different things and they're just not working. And so when you're holding the college board to a higher standard than uh, the education that college students are doing right now, not to say that the education that college students are doing right now is bad or insignificant, but when the college board is putting a higher standard, something's going wrong there. And so in that sense, that sort of test is, I don't think it's very applicable to students at this moment in time. And then I also wanna point out uh, higher education testing and uh, college placement testing. So I'm taking the ACT on Tuesday and that's going to be in the exact same format that it has been in. So for those types of exams. I do applaud the college board and the fact that they've gotten rid of SAT subject testing and that they've been more workable around the SAT, but the ACT hasn't made any changes during this time other than maybe adding a couple more dates that you can take tests on. The fact that they haven't changed their format at all in response to COVID is debatable on whether that's a good thing or not, but I do want to applaud higher education at institutions for a lot of them going test optional. I get a lot of emails in a day and a lot of those end up just being, uh, hey, come to our college, hey, apply to our college. And a lot of those sticking points end up being apply to us because we're test optional now. And for your graduating class, we're going to be overlooking tests. And so I think having those college placement tests, is a good thing for those students that want to do them and that they feel comfortable and like, okay, cool, I can go in for four hours, sit down for an ACT and really feel comfortable doing that. And that can be an expression of my education, but it's good for those students that 
normally don't have that option or don't feel comfortable doing it or feel like that their education was impacted in a way to where their ACT or their SAT or their AP scores aren't reflective of their education, they're more able to still express themselves in different ways through their essays, interviews, uh, extracurriculars, just everything else that they're doing in their education outside of just getting testing. So, so it's annoying to some extent that a lot of tests aren't changing and that a lot of tests are covering the same content while the world is kind of under siege right now. But it's also good that for a lot of those places where those tests would apply, uh, they're starting to overlook those tests more and feel more comfortable saying, we don't need these. These aren't truly a reflection of your education because how could they be when they're in the same format and the world isn't in the same format? Connor, I love those words, the whole, they're in the same format, but the world isn't in the same format. And I, I'm gonna try not to ramble, but I had to write some notes down because it was like, ah, we're all on the same page. And like, I will say this, and I wanna start with this as like a counterpoint for myself. I'm not real good at uh, hearing things like this, but there was someone, a teacher was ranting about like state testing and all that. And I was like, hell yeah, we need to not have state testing because it's totally pointless. And someone else had pointed out like, well, we all know there's a gap. We all know learning hasn't been effective, but we need to quantify that. And then I was like, well, maybe it's not so black and white. And I don't have an answer to that, but I guess there is another side to that state testing. And it's, it's a cost benefit situation, which is there's a benefit to knowing what these level these kids are at, but it's at the cost of one more stress, one more stupid, meaningless piece of paper. So I don't know. And so I have to try and tell myself that there are other perspectives that I may not consider, but I will tell you, I'm super cranky about the AP test. Um, and like testing in general has been very hard for me because chemistry is a very process oriented subject. And like there's application of things that I can't test digitally effectively, at least in my opinion. And then also like none of these tests mean anything because anybody can cheat any amount they need to, um, if you know what I'm saying. So like I, I, I get these scores and it's like, wow, this really smart person didn't do well. Well, they're struggling at home. Life sucks. And uh, these people are doing well because they cheated, right? And then like, and I got to take a deep breath on this one. All this is the people who have been able to normalize their existence are the people with money. So like what we're, what we're not testing is we're holding, Connor, as you said, we're holding people accountable for testing in a tests that were designed for different circumstances in a different time period over different content. And the only people who can maintain the more normalcy of doing that are people with money. And I'm not criticizing people with money, uh, but I am saying like they are the people who, who can make this a minimal impact on their lives. And the gap just gets so wide when we see that. And like, I'm really worried about that. And then the AP, <clears throat> like everything Spandana and Connor that you said, 100% spot on. And I want to tell you some of the ridiculousness from the logistics end. Uh, and I will let you in on my own ignorance, which is I have no idea what the testing looks like. I have no idea what days <clears throat> it's going on. And we've gotten several emails. And uh, th I think there's kind of two camps, but like one that was like, hey, what do you guys think we should do? And one of them was like, uh, get all the testing done before school's over. All, I don't remember, all online or all in person, but before school's over. And then there was one with like this split system of partially online, partially not, like two weeks apart. I don't know. And then there was one that seemed like it was in like August or something. And that's hyperbole. I mean, it was June, I'm sure. But I, I remember sending a message back and I said, this is insane. The, the last thing we need to do is make these kids think about tests after school gets out. 
Number one, nobody's learning anything. We're all just getting dumber. And uh, number two, they just need to get it off their plates as soon as possible, right? That's one more thing in cognitive load. But like my, my brain just burns with this idea of these kids are going to have to sit for two or three weeks after school gets out thinking about these tests. How ridiculous is that? These tests that are meaningless because if it's online, these people can just pay somebody to sit there and take the test for them. None of this means anything. None of these online tests I'm giving mean anything. And so I'm trying to skew them that way. But man, so the reasoning, if you want to know some of the other point of view is there, there are teachers who are like, and I understand, there are teachers who are saying, well, the more time I have to prepare, we can compensate for all the time we lost during the year. And I understand, you know, they're scared too. They get judged by these AP scores and they want them to look good. And that's how we do things. Like there is this content, I need to cover it. I'm glad they're going to give me some more time. So, uh, oh yeah, man, seniors, I just saw it from Dorian chat. It's a mind blowing issue. But I, I'm not too keen on College Board right now. I don't like what they've done. I don't like what they did last spring. They are a for-profit organization, and I have to take that into consideration, which is like, I think they got to pay the bills, I guess. But do we really need to, their need to pay the bills need to be like this crushing weight on all the students' shoulders? I don't, I don't have a good answer there. But all this online testing, uh, unmonitored, meaningless, again, that's hyperbole, but like, Anybody can do whatever they want, and people with more money are going to do more. So, I don't know. That's sorry for the ramble. I definitely want to reemphasize that point about money to where, uh, through this survey and through the study that we've done with students, uh, the students that were of the highest socioeconomic classes were the ones that uh, they still had negative impacts, but they were the ones that slid down the least. They were the ones that were that went from doing great to doing okay or if they were okay, they normally stayed around that okay mark. And so they stayed in that upper band of doing all right to where students that were more middle-class or even your bottom 50%, uh, they slid harder and they slid from being okay to doing pretty bad or doing terribly. And so that's sort of slide and that's sort of, well, you can definitely quantify that. You can see how that's affecting your, not only your achievement gap, but your social emotional gap, every single gap that you can outline in education it's been affected by money and that's only been increased by the pandemic because ultimately if you have the money to pay for whatever Chegg premium, if you have the money to pay for ACT tutors, if you have the money to pay for AP tutors, if you have the money to pay for private classes, for good technology, for uh, good books to read, to study on your own, if you have the money to pay for the luxury of time to do all of that to where you don't have to go work on a job, you don't have to worry about the bills being paid, maybe both of your parents don't work. If you have the money, then it'll work out for you and you can make your COVID situation very, very insignificant and still get the same amount of learning that you probably were in person. And so wealth is such a big factor into this because once again, if you have that wealth, uh, COVID kind of goes away. And for a lot of students, that just isn't a possibility. And so you're going to see that achievement gap widen and widen and widen and that social emotional gap widen and widen and widen as the students that are the most privileged uh, continue to do pretty all right and stay in about the same spot, whereas the students that are the most marginalized are going to start sliding and they're going to slide very, very hard. And we've already been able to quantify that through the achievement gap. And we've already quantified that through the social emotional gap. And there hasn't been a response to that yet because while there is no magic bullet, there just seems to have been almost a freeze as like everyone's trying to figure out how do we just keep moving forward to whereas the solution may not necessarily to be 
we just need to keep moving forward. Maybe we do need to stop and take a moment and say, how do we address these gaps and how do we address the students that are the most marginalized? Because they're the ones being affected here. It's not the students that can pay for check premium. It's not the students that can pay for MATLAB premium. It's not the students that can pay for my chemistry tutor. It's the students that can't afford any of that, can't afford tutors, can't afford private classes. It's the students that are just trying to get through school normally. I think what part of what you had said was really striking to me too, because as we kind of like approach this new, you know, sense of normalcy, I think part of it is also addressing what wasn't working and using this time in transition as an opportunity to be able to be better than what we were before. Um, and so for folks that are listening, you know, the study that we've all been alluding to so far was um, the Coping with COVID-19 Student-to-Student Study, which was a student-driven initiative launched in the wake of statewide school closures, um, created to understand Kentucky students' social, emotional, and learning experiences during the first month of the COVID crisis. Um, this statewide survey was co-designed by students and adult research advisors with the Kentucky Student Voice Team um, and disseminated in May of 2020 via a combination of peer-to-peer -peer communication, administrative school-wide dissemination, and partnerships with youth and community organizations. Um, so as part of the first part of this study, nearly 13,000 students took part in the survey, which was representing nearly all of Kentucky's 120 counties. Um, and so currently and through the next coming months, our entire research team has conducted almost 50 peer-to-peer -peer interviews to gain a more holistic perspective and demographic um, representing both student experiences in the midst of remote learning and the diversity of our state um, on a demographic perspective. So some of our key findings are really striking. Like Connor, you were just speaking to, I think, you know, there, a lot of it depends on purely on what students is, um, social and emotional wellness looked like. It directly informed their educational experiences. Um, and I think Spun and I, like you were saying earlier, you know, the teacher and parent survey showed very striking similarities. And I think right now we've alluded to this a lot so far, um, but Connor, if you want to spend a little bit of time speaking to just the broader social and emotional wellnesses that students um, had experienced, you know, the things that had shifted, you know, we don't have specific percentages at the top of our mind right now, but I think the qualitative data and analysis itself was very striking. Um, and we were all um, qualitative and quantitative researchers on this study. So um, there's a lot between student experiences and student, you know, and just statistics itself, which I think really speak for themselves. So Connor, if you want to speak towards the learning experiences of students broadly and how distance learning largely disrupted the sense of normalcy that we've, um, you know, constantly alluded to. And then Spandana, if you want to spend some time um, after maybe talking about how students' future plans were shifted in the midst of all of this. Oh, Lord. Okay. There's a lot there. So <laughs> I open up with, oh, Lord, just because at the top, uh, students across the board got worse. There were a very, very, very small percentage of students. I think it ended up being like one or two to where if their situation didn't change, it actually got better. So one or two percent of all students that we surveyed uh, appreciated the shutdown of schools and enjoyed virtual learning. About 20 to 30 percent, depending on the question, stayed about the same. And then that sort of 58 percent below that, all of them did worse. Whether it came with how they were experiencing education, how they were doing socially, emotionally, 
every factor that we can measure them by, by mental health and by their education experiences rather than their education outcomes, it was worse. Students were reporting that they were having a terrible time, that they weren't enjoying school, that they were less engaged, they, they were less motivated, that they didn't know what was going on, that they felt like they had less information, they were more confused, they weren't learning as much. Every single factor that we can measure it by, it decreased. And so that was very, very striking. And then coming back to what I was saying earlier, it was the most marginalized students that were having the worst times with it. And they were seeing the biggest slides from being okay to doing terribly. Whereas a lot of students that were more privileged went from being okay to doing kind of meh. And so when you see this major slide with these marginalized students, and that can come from being of a lower socioeconomic status, it can come from race, it can come from disability, it can come from being an English language learner, anything that would traditionally marginalize a student within an education system, that impact was felt because of the shutdowns and because of this sort of isolation that happened of these students, because having that in-person school system and having that structure for a lot of students was very, very, very important. And so when we had that change and we had that transition, those students were the ones to disengage the fastest because they were already prone to disengaging. And then talking about this more of a qualitative way, uh, one question that I worked on a lot was, what was your biggest uh, issue during this time? And we took the survey in May and we got all our data within May. So we were asking students, what are you most concerned about right now? And we saw responses that spanned the entirety of school experience to where a lot of students were pointing out that uh, my extracurricular shut down, I can't see my friends, I can't be social anymore, I feel very isolated, and that's been hard. A lot of students have pointed out that uh, my mental health has gotten worse, my depression's gotten worse, my anxiety's gotten worse, my eating disorder has gotten worse during this time. Uh, a lot of students pointed out very, very difficult issues. I don't know if I'm going to be able to pay my bills next month. I don't know where our money is going to be coming from because both my parents lost their jobs. I don't know how we're going to get food on the table. I don't know if we're going to have a roof over our, uh, if we're just going to have a roof or a bed to sleep in within the next couple of weeks. I don't know if we're going to be able to pay rent. I can't get a job right now. And I need to care for uh, X number of siblings that are younger than me. I feel like I'm working 20 hours a day with only four hours of sleep between school and work and trying to care for other people, for the elderly people in my family and for the younger people in my family because both my parents work. Uh, you see things that come from just the range of human experience during this time. Everything from sort of the light ideas of, uh, I mean, light quote unquote ideas of, I'm stressed about testing, I'm stressed about my education, I don't know if I'm learning as much, I am feeling antisocial to, I feel like I'm going to like I have suicidal tendencies or I don't know what I'm going to do next. I'm very scared for my future because things are so unstable and I don't have any way of impacting that because I'm a student and I need to be learning right now. And so for those students, uh, it's been a very, very difficult time. And the students have been having those worst experiences and been doling out the most quote unquote significant problems. There is no problem that's insignificant by the way, but the ones that have been, that are the most adverse, I would say, those are the ones that are coming from the most marginalized students traditionally. So a lot of your black students, a lot of your Latino students, a lot of your students of lower socioeconomic status, students with disabilities, they're the ones that are often having to go out and work for 10 hours a day and then come back and do eight hours of school. They're the ones that are 
needing to worry about whether they're going to pay their bills. And on top of all that, having that social isolation, having that extracurricular isolation and having just this kind of island of misery, that's probably one of the most difficult things that we've seen out of our students. Yeah, and to really bounce off of everything you said, everything Connor said really um, just affected students' future plans. Um, if a student was of a lower socioeconomic status, well, they don't know if they can go to college anymore. If their parents lost their job, they don't know if they have the funds to actually pay for that. If students weren't able to do extracurriculars, they don't know if they can qualify for scholarships. There was just so much um, like everything that Connor was talking about really, really affected future plans. I actually pulled up a statistic to kind of help visualize, um, but in the students that expected like change in their future plans, 54% expected like that change to be negative, which is like a huge, huge percent when we're talking about like thousands of responses that we got. Um, and so a majority of the students were talking about like their college and their like immediate um, future. And um, there was just so much uncertainty surrounding it all. Um, and actually there, this one quote, I really just wanted to highlight um, because I feel like it gives a very, very in-depth perspective of what the student is going through. But they said, my grades are going to hit the floor and I'm scared I won't get into the college I want. I live in poverty and always viewed college as a must to get out of this lifestyle. But now I'm not so sure about anything. And I just feel like that really speaks to like all the inequities that have really been exacerbated during this time and how unfair it was for students and how so many of these students had to get second jobs um, to try and like pay for tuitions and stuff. But sometimes like those wouldn't be enough because they would um, they weren't essential and they would, you know, get laid off or things like that. And then they don't know where they're going to get that funding for their tuition. And so there was just so much uncertainty about whether students could even make it there and get to college. And that has been something that they may have always dreamed for. But now because of COVID, because of this pandemic and because of all the supports that were lost when we transitioned to virtual um, schooling, like they don't they don't know. And talking about college as a way to get out of um, that lifestyle, I think we always view education as something that helps students um, like succeed and it's their pathway to success. But I feel like it's also very dependent on like all the supports that are offered by school and um, having counselors and things that maybe weren't as available to students when once we got virtual. Um, I know one of our interview students talked about how their counselors were never available and now they had to email them, making them even less available. It was just so, so disconnected. So I think it's really imperative that we urge, um, that we urge education policymakers um, to really, really consider um, those other supports as well as education, um, uh, such as post-secondary um, supports um, when we like transition to things like this, because it's just so difficult for students who are like lower socioeconomic statuses or like marginalized. And we've said this several times over again, um, but you know, all of this is just so multifaceted. Students have a lot going on with their social lives and their, you know, educational lives, but, you know, teachers are in the same boat too. And so are literally other, every other, you know, types of um, people in our community. But I think the, the, 
the best way to really encapsulate all of this is just to have grace and moving back um, into the sense of normalcy, recognizing that what was once normal isn't going to be normal ever again beyond wearing masks and going through metal detectors and things like that. It's It has a lot to do with the discrepancies that existed within our education system, like Spendino was saying, are now being exacerbated. Um, and I think I often say this, but it it's sad to think that it took a pandemic and, you know, so much other stuff in our country to be able to really illuminate the fragility of our education system. But if that's what it took, then we should use this as an opportunity really to move forward in a way where all students feel welcomed in their environment and where, you know, teachers and students are equitably served by their, you know, leaders in the whole educational policy world. Um, but yeah, I, I really value this whole discussion. I think it's, it really brought the nuance and the perspective we needed to better understand um, where things should go from now on. I just, well, now I have one and a half comments to chime in. I'm sorry. I know you guys are tapping your watches. The first of which though, is the mental health aspect. And like, it was, it's spectacular to hear from you all those exact same things that this study is saying, which is like not knowing where your next meal is going to come from, not knowing if you're going to be able to pay the rent or whatever. When, when I'm talking about mental health being a top priority and then physical health, like you can't have stable mental health if you don't know what's going to happen not knowing is such an emotional and mental burden like oh it's overwhelming to even think about and then my my super quick comment i had heard around 2010 and i haven't heard these words again although i'm sure they're echoed all over which is that socioeconomic status was the new civil rights it's uh kind of interesting that it is spread out instead of you know a racial issue although it skews because of the way the system's set up but uh, socioeconomic status is the new thing where we're going to have to somehow break those barriers. Yeah, definitely. I just want to say thank you again to all of your all's perspectives and just your opinions you brought to the table in this discussion. You know, we're still new to this kind of, but it's been one of the first where we can just hand it off to you all. And it's been so fantastic to hear everything you have to say and just how you carried the conversation. So thank you so much for that. Um, and that's all we have. If you have anything else to add, Pragya. No, I don't. I'm just, I'm so grateful. I think this was like such a long anticipated discussion because part of it is like, I think, and we were talking about this too earlier, and I think all of us have thought this at some point, but sometimes you don't realize what other people in other shoes are going through, um, whether that's us students trying to understand what educators have been going through. I was talking to some teachers yesterday about, like Madsen was saying, how many emails you all are getting and how quick things are changing. Like it's, and it's no one's fault. It's just the way things are. We're all kind of in a funk right now. And I think part of that just means, you know, once again, maintaining flexibility, but also just recognizing that we're all in this together. And um, that's just, that's just where we are as a country. So I'm, I'm really grateful for the opportunity to just be able to connect and talk about how our experiences are so intersecting and moving forward. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Perspective. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at perspective.pd to hear more about special guests and upcoming episodes and have a great week. Mm -hmm.